ever imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Kevin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock. About music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though, if you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with shot and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool. I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It's a science thing. It's a science place. It's a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only, Brutonic Reversal. Now with more volume. Yeah, only episode 203. You know. Do I have this figured out yet? Yeah, you, you, you'd think. <laughs> you'd think. Anyway, uh, thanks for tuning in. We have a fantastic guest for you today. A uh, friend of mine and doer of awesome things, Mr. Patrick Ferguson. He's the excellent drummer of the band 5-8, Pinky Doodle Poodle. Uh, he played in the freaking Psychedelic Furs for tour, which is amazing. But most recently, and justifiably, he's been known for the incredible, uh, well worth your time, Crash and Ride podcast, which is pretty all around fantastic. And I'm excited for this. Should be a good time. Uh, he's a really interesting fella, and uh, he's done a lot of stuff. I'm just gonna dig right into it. So uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, get 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 talking to him now? Uh, just I guess real quick. Thanks to everyone who's been sharing the show around. As I've mentioned over and over again, you know that's how people find out about it. So I, I like the people have been, you know, very very gracious and sharing around this show and the episodes that they like. And uh, just nice with the feedback, and uh, you know, it's it's in dark times. It's you gotta look out for each other, and I'm happy that what I'm doing has some small amount of solace for everyone. Uh, it certainly helps keep me on deck and <laughs> pointed towards positive things. So, uh, thank you, thank you all very much for that. Uh, it's it's very much appreciated. And uh, yeah, let's uh, why don't we talk to uh, let's let's talk to the man himself. Let's let's talk to Patrick. How about that? Let's talk. Let's talk to Tigger. I don't know if I've earned the ability to call. call hey, Tigger, man. But <laughs> hey, Patrick, how you doing, sir? Can I'm I call you I Tigger? Gotta... Am I on Tigger basis with you? You know, I don't. Nobody calls me that anymore, really. So um, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Like you know, um, there's people who've been around Athens for thirty years who remember me as the guy who showed up with that nickname. But yeah, I, I mean, nick- just nicknames are such a bizarre art. Uh, and I think the only ones that don't work are the ones that people give themselves. Like when someone's like, no, call me Iron Balls or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, ain't no one going to do that, man. No one's going to do that. Uh, that's that line from Stripe, settled out, Francis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they call me the captain. No, they fucking don't. They absolutely do not call you the captain. <laughs> Nobody calls you that. <laughs> uh, but, hey, man, uh, this has been a long time coming. I've actually been meaning to have you on for quite some time, and... Uh, you know, life just kind of kept happening and continues to happen, strangely enough. 
Uh, I'll tell you, man. 2020. Uh, it's not going to win any awards. <laughs> Award for most disliked year, perhaps. Is <sighs> I think the only one I can think of. Yeah. Uh, I I will say that uh, I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to start it because I want to get heavy into the music stuff, but I think it'd be disingenuous Mm -hmm. to not just dive right in that uh, Crash and Ride's a pretty interesting podcast, man. It's one of the few ones I can think of that's a very interesting listen, but kind of serves a purpose as well. (laughs) And uh, I mean, other than, you know, informing or entertaining along those lines, but it's, uh, it's certainly the only one of its kind that does its thing. As someone who also does this this endeavor myself, I kind of was wondering what your motivation was, what, just, just to start it up, how you got the idea, uh, you know, why you decided to call it what it was. I assume it's a drummer thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, Crash and Ride, of course, is the two kinds of cymbal yeah. that matter. There's two other kinds. So you have crash cymbals, ride cymbals, and then there's the cymbals that, you know, only That like, we do not speak of. <laughs> right. Splash trays and... Uh, right. The, uh, I mean, you know, Gene Krupa used a China crash, but it, it would be weird to have the word China in a in a podcast in 2020. So. <laughs> um, I, I had a thrash ride symbol for a very long time, but as a non wow. as a non drummer that plays plays the drums now and again, I, I feel like I get dispensation. Maybe maybe that's not true. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've ever seen a thrash ride symbol, but it sounds interesting. I mean, it's just a crash ride symbol with, you know, like it had some stupid lettering on it for metalheads, I presume. You know, it's like one of sure. those things. But Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it made the right noise when you hit it, which to me is the <laughs> it's really it's a salient point. Oh. Yeah. Um But yeah, the podcast. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. Tell, yeah. So tell me about it. So, you know, I I like most people who got into podcasting kinda as a as a listener. Uh, enjoy the long form interview format, and and I was trying to figure out like what 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 where is there like a, a a place in the world of podcasting where there's a need that's not being kind of met, and um, also as a musician who has done fuck I don't know like three thousand shows at this point, um, I've been at like every sort of shoot and ladder of the sort of mental health spectrum of well-being and and um the highs and the lows the oh man <laughs> the weirds in betweens yeah. right <laughs> yeah yeah totally and um so you know i i was, I was a big marin fan listened to a lot of marin but I always felt like um that, that musicians on that show were kind of like they didn't ever go as deep as the comedians and i was like why yes. is that uh, yes, I completely agree with you. Like he almost treated them like they were aliens or something. Like they, they, you know, there's something to figure out that was, and was like, well, why are you coming at this differently than you would like some dude that you whatever saw at the comedy store or whatever the hell? Well, I think it's because Marin really, really like he's a guitar player. He, he's an aspiring musician, but you know, he's kind of a basement player and really wants to like be a part of that world. But he really hates other comedians. <laughs> <laughs> So you think it's because he actually likes the musicians? You think that might? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, nah, seriously though, I think Marin's thing is that like if you come on his show as a comedian and you start working material, Mm-mm. like he'll shut you down. He'll yeah, pump yeah. the brakes. Yeah, like yeah. He, he, I've heard him stop somebody mid sentence to be like, "Are you are you doing a bit? Are you are you working on your material on my show?" Yeah, saying in it's, that way that you we all know damn well what the real answer is. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It, yeah, but like you know, I think just because he doesn't, he recognizes the process of making comedy so instinctively that when someone like a musician comes on and 
and starts kind of just like reciting press releases. Uh, he, he doesn't ever really just go, Hey man, like just be real. Like don't, don't just hit me with uh, what your right. publicist, you know, the talking points they gave you to promote this record. So I felt like, you know, as someone who's toured heavily and been in kind of 8 million bands that, um, maybe there wasn't like a place where musicians were really talking about kind of the perils of, of, uh, I was depressed and anxiety, trauma, addiction, all the things that like maybe in a lot of cases serve as the, the primary inspiration for the art that we create. And I felt like those could be interesting conversations. So, you know, I, I went to my first guest, which is Jake Kreger, the uh, mm, just badass, <laughs> ridiculously talented drummer of Multicult and yeah. a bunch of other bands. It, um, um, oh man, the, uh, his amazing thrash band, the name of it just went right out of my head, but, um, I'll remember it like four o'clock in the morning. I'll text you, but um, <laughs> you like wake up and be like, it's such and such. Yeah, I do that too. <laughs> so good. But, um, like he came on and midway through the first interview, I thought, okay, this is good shit. Like this is useful stuff. Like, yeah. What, tell me about what your life was like growing up depressed or anxious or struggling with trauma or whatever. And how did music make it better? And what's your life been like as a musician now, you know, working through all that shit, you know? And so every interview, that first, first, first 16 episodes of the show are contained like three of the heaviest episodes ever. Yeah, man. It's, it's a, like I, I articulate it in the way that it's difficult to, kind of binge listen i guess because it's like you hear one of them and you say all right i just gotta like kind of sit with this for a minute and, and think about that yeah. Yeah. in a good way which but that's that's something i don't get that often like i'm a pretty voracious podcast listener and yeah. I, I think I, I don't remember i messaged you or not about it but i think when i first when i first heard it I, it, it, was, it was like oh this hits different this hits different and i and like this is interesting because i don't think i've heard this kind of thing before and certainly not from this perspective and in, yeah. in a good way how, when do you listen to podcasts? Like, what's your sort of like, oh, I do it at the gym or I do it when I'm driving to work or when is your podcast listening time? It's, it's certainly not driving these days. That's for damn sure. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's, it, that's why I'm asking. I'm just sort of curious. I, I'm a big, I, I listen to podcasts while cooking, while cleaning. A lot of times I'll throw them on if I'm doing like band admin stuff, you know, like sending out a orders or, or whatever some some kind of mindless activity that I, I want to help pass the time with but it's yeah. always something where I will if something occurs that's going to like take my attention away I always pause it I don't just, I don't yeah. just let it go always and the yeah. reason why is because I never throw anything I'm, I'm not interested in listening kind of I guess the same thing's true with music but with music I feel like it's a little easier to let it wash over you sometimes yeah uh, and when something especially with your show just because what's being discussed is so I mean, I, I, to say that it's serious says that there's an impertinence or, or lack of serious nature with other things, but it's serious business, man. I mean, and and, yeah. and and it's something that's what I appreciate is that all this stuff's like stigmatized and, and never discussed and never, or if it's discussed, it's alluded to, like very right. very you know just kind of vaguely like fill in the blanks yourself, and it's just. With this show, you get you get folks on, and, and people are just outright talking about it. And and sometimes it comes out naturally, just like tell me about your background, yeah. Tell me you got from point A to point B, whatever. Uh, and sometimes it just kind of comes seems to come out of left field, but 
I'm a big fan of, you know, things being a little smaller when they're out. And I feel like yeah. the show does that and it's it's effective. And it's but it's but it's not heavy-handed. And that's the thing. It's other shows that like what can First off, I've never heard another show do it quite as effectively and with an ethos and point of view. So kudos for that. But mm. I think if they did, it'd be a lot more heavy-handed and a lot more <sighs> precious about it. Might be the yeah. wrong word, but I'm going to stand I'm not it. I'm not religious and I'm not dogmatic. Like I don't have any particular um, framework that I that I feel like I have to approach other people's sadness from. So I'm not going to be like, you know what you need? You need Jesus. Like that's never going to happen on my show. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's, you're not coming at it from a, like a, a uh, an event evangelizing perspective of any kind. Right. I mean, the two things. You know, whenever anybody comes on my show, I, I do the interview, and it's usually couple of hours long and then I spend some time with it editing like taking out as much of me like talking about myself as much as I can because I feel like that doesn't really it's not really useful um, unless it's a point that I feel like if I'm like talking about some aspect of my own recovery from you know the shit that I went through then maybe but mostly I just want to hear what the guest has to say and then I send them a copy of it like in advance of it airing and say give this a listen Tell me what you think. Uh, make sure there's nothing there that you don't need me to take out. Because I don't ever want anybody to come on the show and regret having done a Crash and Ride show. Like, like they were too open in a way. Maybe they talked some trash or something and you know, got better of it. Something along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Very early on, I had a guest on. Um, and this was before I started doing this. And we, we talked for two hours. I edited it, put it out. And they called me like a week later. They're like, that thing I said about my mom, I might need to take that out. And yeah. um, so I took it out. And that's a deal I make with everybody who comes on the show. If at any point between now and, you know, the day that uh, our robot overlord shut down our servers, uh, any time between now and then, um, if you feel like something needs to come out or I need to take an episode down or something in your life changed dramatically and you're like, I just need that to go away. If this is a living body of work and I will kill it the second you ask me to. And that's interesting because I feel like it encourages people to be more open and to kind of dig a little deeper because they know that it's like, oh, well, you know, if you if you hit a pipe, you can cover it back up again afterwards, maybe. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to worry about rupturing the sewage line if you dig too deep. Yeah. I also don't I don't want anybody to ever come on the show and, and feel judged. Like there's definitely going to be some people who will never be guests because I just don't like them. And I, <laughs> I don't want them to come on the show because I – like I'm going to be sitting there, they're going to be like, "Yeah," and then things got really dark, and I'm like, "Yeah, that's that sucks, hmm. asshole." Right. Yeah. <laughs> have, have have folks been pitched to you, or, or have pitched themselves? Maybe that. Yeah, there's some white hip hop kid in the uh, uh, northern Midwest who's got a publicist out of Brooklyn, and yeah, yeah. man, they just have been showering me with. Uh, Request to be on the show, and he seems like a good kid. He's had a, you know, he's had a battle, uh, but like, it, you know, right there in the bio it says, you know, through his own, uh, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but it definitely mentions like, you know, improving his relationship with Jesus, and oh, and I'm just like, you know, <laughs> I mean, look, I, I have I have friends who are, you know, 
pretty religious and sure. I, I just don't and I've had a couple of guests you know who but it just feels like like the fact that it's like upfront in his bio it feels like fake piety and I'm not really yeah yeah it just feels like a commercial at that point it, it's and, almost like a that's not an affectation, but almost like part of this caric- self-made caricature or something along those lines. Like this is this is part of the storytelling process. Is like, you know, I'm oh I'm this I play this type of music and but I've got faith and you know I've had a hard life and it's like okay, dude, whatever. Yeah, I, we get it. <laughs> yeah, I just don't get a sincere vibe from it. And maybe I'll give him a call at some point and go, dude, talk to me. Like, tell me. Yeah. I want to. I want to. But right now, I've got just like I've got three interviews right now. That I'm, I've only edited one of them. I'm like going ninety to nothing just to get everything out right now. Yeah, I admire your level of of uh, stupidity. Uh, no, just <laughs> like two hundred episodes, man. Like I'm doing one a week, and it's like all I can do to shovel and bail as fast as I can. Yeah, I mean it's 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 not for everyone. Let's put it that way, and uh, <laughs> that's probably the best probably the best way I can put that. Uh, yeah. You know, I, 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 we'll talk more about that another time. But it's because it, it ain't about me. Uh, th- there's a lot more to speak of with that. But I mean, even then, it's it's not like the show has enough regularity that you know it, it's a it's a constant companion for people that that are interested in that kind of thing. And what I found interesting, and you know, full disclosure, I've listened to like maybe like 20 episodes, something along those lines, which is about mm-hmm. 19 more than I listen to most podcasts of. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I've, I've just tossed in a couple of words. Like, I, don't, I don't know who this is. Let's check this out. And super interesting. Like, I immediately found a a hook in, you know, whether it was like someone's background or like, oh, yeah, whatever. That person's a friend of a friend or something along those lines. Like, there wasn't anyone that I, like, uh, dive, dove into. And I felt like I was, well, that was a waste of my time. And yeah. that's, that's kind of remarkable. And I think it has to do with how you, I, I mean... I, I got bitched at for saying curate when it's not art once, so I have kind of a complex yeah. about saying curate, but you got a curated experience. Well, I'm still at the point where I'm not getting many solicitations. Like, I go after people that I want to talk to. Uh, and, and sometimes it's someone I know who has had a struggle, a journey that's going to be interesting or useful or helpful for other people, like right. Mary Eleanor Joyce. But, you know, she hasn't that was sold. A, amazing episode. Loved it. Right. You know, uh, and God, uh, for her to agree to talk to me, and then we have this like really kind of shitty Skype connection, and then the next day, we I, like that night. I'm like, you know what? This isn't working. If you haven't heard the episode, anybody who's listening, Mary Eleanor Joyce is drummer for Maximum Busy Muscle, and, and uh, play guitar in the incredibly influential Athens band Incendiaries. Yeah, yeah, but they're not like a band that eight million people know. I don't want to be gatekeeping people's story by being like, oh, yeah, you, you beat depression and drug addiction. Well, how many records have you sold? Like, fuck that. That's not that's not the approach <laughs> of the show at all. Like, like you have to have a relative metric of pain for it to be something that's interesting. Right. <laughs> like if so, you sold this many records then you're allowed to ride the ride. <laughs> right. It's, that's it's not it's not how I want to do things. Yeah. So I knew that she was an adoptive parent like me and hers is a transracial adoption. I knew that she was struggling with. Um, caring for a father who was suffering from dementia. And so when she said, I'm interested in doing the show, I, I was like, absolutely. Uh, it, we had just sort of, like, I, I may have asked her like a, a few months ago and then she said yes. And then we, we got busy with stuff and finally it was like time to do it. We started the interview on Skype. The, the sound quality was terrible. I said, you know what? 
I'm going to come to your house tomorrow. We're going to socially distance, do an interview. And then between the time I hung up the phone and the sun rose, her father died. And I was like, you know what? If you don't want to do this, it's cool. She's like, nope, let's do this. And so I went to her house. You know, she had a few beers and we sat on her back porch. You can hear the crickets in the interview. It's it's man, that's yeah. Just, there's, even the ambient noise like works <laughs> works for what you guys are doing because it it just hammers home the sorry to interrupt, but it hammers home the the idea that it's just you know people talking, right? It isn't like <laughs> NPR yeah, presents. You know, it, it right. it's it's got it's got this this immediate feel of like it just feels like you're hanging on the porch, like shooting the breeze, talking about real stuff. Yeah, I don't think I ever want it to get more polished than it is. Um, maybe. Uh, Evan Rowe, his episode is one of the rawest yeah. human media experiences I've ever had. <laughs> um, and I, I, I talk about it in the intro this, in the intro to the episode that like his he was so low key and so quiet and so kind of we were sitting on the floor of an apartment up in I think it was Durham or Raleigh. I, I can never keep the Triangle City straight, but I thought, man, when he was telling his story. And how bad it had been, I thought this this dude is not okay, you know. Yeah. And I was really worried about him until we got to the end of the episode, and he started talking about a treatment for his depression that was working. But like, you know, that's that's a, that's somebody I love very much and care about, and I guess that's episode nine. It's one of the most like that, that one still gets me. Like, if you want to jump in somewhere with Crash and Ride, that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that would have been an incredibly heavy episode, even if you didn't know the dude. But when you, <laughs> like, when you do, you know, I send him a message, like, almost immediately afterwards. And I was like, you know, I was blown away. And it's, yeah, I was very careful about what I what I said with it. But I just basically said, like, I thought it was, you know, incredibly brave you did come out like that and and say that that's the best dude he's and, the best dude oh yeah absolutely and and it, amazing player too i mean and <laughs> not just yeah. not just like the most world-class drummer but i'm like this son of a bitch is good on guitar too are you kidding me like yeah. really <laughs> unbelievable guy <laughs> like Superhero. astoundingly good human being like like just yeah. the the best love that dude yeah. and but then also you know it, it's you wouldn't necessarily know that he has those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of feelings and, and that kind of struggle going on. Cause you know, what's, what was it? Was that saying go, you never know what's going on in a, in someone else's life or something, you know, whatever. I'm paraphrasing this poorly, but you, you know, the one I'm talking about. And yeah. Yeah. But I could, I mean, it's like a weird, like secret handshake. I can, I, when I'm in the room with someone who's been in it, like I can tell, Usually, because there's just so much like me. I feel instant kinship. Yeah. And uh, I talked to Evan like 10 minutes for the, the first time we met, and I was like, this guy's going to be my brother for life. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, that's, you know, it's it's crazy you say that, because when I was talking to Alan Johannes, I was talking about that feeling of just like, you just know. Like, sometimes some people you just meet them, you're like, we're just... We're going to be close. We're going to be buddies. And I just know this immediately. We've had, we spoke two words to each other. <laughs> and like, yeah. I just know that like, you're going to be an important person in my life. That's it's, it's a wild, wild thing. 
I mean, that brotherhood is part of why the whole Crash and Ride thing exists. Because I run into these like musicians that could be noise rock guys or punk guys or Americana guys or uh, hip hop artists that I've worked with, and like that, that's my family. Like, uh, uh, my wife joked once that you're going to be king of the sad boys. I'm like sad. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard like, worse titles. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Sad girls too, babe." Yeah, I was gonna you know? say, "Why are we gonna be sexist about yeah. it, huh?" <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's but also a lot of this comes from a lifetime of playing music and the the people you know oh, yeah. as fellow travelers, and you know, in in some cases, folks in the trenches with you. You know, you you forge mm-hmm. a kind of friendship that is quite hard to describe for people that have not lived that life because it somehow goes beyond friendship. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's it's a deep affinity. And, and you have, I mean, and, and I really would, I mean, we could just eat up the whole time talking about Crash and Ride, but you've had an incredible career in music that, that goes way back. I, and I suppose this is the time when we talk about the PRF. But yeah, uh, the PRF uh, looms large within your show just because of your personal connections. It's how I know you as well. But I actually right. knew 5'8 before there was a PRF. And I'm, you know, and that's coming from a dude who's living on the West Coast. And yeah, I knew you five, guys because we toured. And I was like, oh, there's this cool yeah. band called 5'8. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're, they're, they're from somewhere in the South because, you know, geography. <laughs> yeah. And I, I dug you guys' stuff. And so then when I was like, oh, that's this Ringo fella on electrical audio? You know? Right. <laughs> awesome. So do you know the geography fuck up that, that the reason that 5-8 is in Athens, Georgia, and not upstate New York where they met? No, no. What's... Okay, so 5-8, before there was a 5-8, there was a band called The Reasonable Men, and which is incredibly ironic if you know anybody that was in that band. Um, <laughs> Anything but reasonable. <laughs> right. And there was, and, and I mean, yeah. Well, just wait till you hear the rest of the story. So Mike Mantiani, Dan Horowitz, the uh, guitar player and lead singer and bass player of 5-8 respectively, were in The Reasonable Men, and there was a member of that band named Dan, another Dan. And um, Mike, if you listen to his episode, I think it's episode 30, he talks about his schizophrenic breakdown. And, and like they had gone, right, he, he, withdrew from college and went back to Long Island where he was from and the reasonable men kind of went into a brief period of stasis where nobody knew what was going to happen and in that break in activity Dan Farns got a rental truck loaded all of the reasonable men's equipment up and drove all the way to Athens Georgia from Binghamton New York where they had met the SUNY Binghamton and they had called everybody you know on pay phones because yeah because that's how it was done back then yeah right yeah um it said I've moved to Athens, Georgia, where R.E.M. is from, and we're going to become Michael Stipe's favorite band and become rich and famous. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 gotta, I always appreciate a very specific goal. Yes, uh, well. <laughs> and all the more so, so when there's an element of absurdity to it. But. <laughs> right. So the rest of the reasonable men were like, ah, oh, fuck, we got to get our equipment back. So they loaded up a rental truck. So he just he just he gathered everyone's equipment up and just drove it down and didn't tell oh, yeah. what was up until it was already done, huh? No. Okay. But here's the funny part: these guys are all New Yorkers, like Long Island, Brooklyn, upstate. Nobody's from anywhere outside the tri-state area, and they're like, "Okay, how far could it be? It's probably like eight, seven, seven, eight hours." And then, if it's east of Atlanta, Atlanta's got to be on the ocean, like Atlantic City, so it's got to be a beach. So they got swimsuits and towels and sunscreen. <laughs> 
pool their money and had enough gas money to get down and back if it was eight, nine hours. And of course, you know, from upstate New York to Athens, Georgia, it's like a 17, 18 hour drive. Yeah. They were just out of money. They got here, ran out of money, turned the rental truck in. And uh, like, we're like, all right, we're going to work long enough to, um, to get our money together and move back to, to, to New York. And well, minimum wage being what it is and, and Athens, Georgia being what it is, like they're still here. <laughs> yeah. The, the, so the cost of living being, you know, significantly cheaper than major, larger uh, metropolitan areas. Yeah. But it pays like garbage. So you're stuck here. Right. Like, exactly. But by the same token, you're not yeah. getting paid nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> once you're in Athens, you're kind of here. And um, so, so I came along a couple of years later when the original drummer for five. So the reasonable men broke up over this whole like kerfuffle and um, spun off the three piece that became five, eight, and they had a drummer who was in an industrial accident uh, and just leg got all fucked up. Like 3,000 pounds of sheetrock fell on this dude's leg. And he could, he's fine now, uh, but there was a year there where he couldn't play drums. Oh, and man. so they asked me to play, and, and I became their full-time drummer. Uh, ironically, um, you know, moving down here with the uh, stated goal of becoming Michael Stipe's favorite band ended up working out. 5-8 opened for R.E.M. on one of their last tours. Um, so... <laughs> So there you go. Don't give up your dreams, kids. Yeah, I was gonna say keep keep those dreams weird and keep them achievable. And there you go. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah, there's a docu- Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, I was gonna say uh, that, that that was around the same time that uh, when you were playing in a band with Vic Chestnut, like really early on, right? Like right before mm-hmm. that that happened. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so it was. I joined a band before I joined Five Eight. I joined a band called Angle Lake. Uh, I came here for college and then immediately dropped out because. Uh, I found out that my ADD, I was able to fake my way through a lot of stuff at public school in South Georgia, but, you know, university life and my attention <laughs> deficit difficulties. It it's, it's uh, becomes a little more difficult as time goes on. Yeah. The funny thing, uh, parenthetically, the same thing happened to my mom. Uh, my mom was an, uh, uh, an opera singer of some renown, but her first year of college, she nearly flunked out because she was illiterate. She had gotten all the way through school by faking it and got to college and wasn't actually able to uh, continue to fake reading anymore and then went home for Christmas break and taught herself to read in like three weeks. Wow. Went back to Yeah. Damn. It's, All right. It's, it's, it's just that like the ADD, anxiety, hyper-focus pipeline to addiction and mental illness is, I, don't, I think it's underexplored, but right. one of the, I'm forming some conclusions after doing a, mental health podcast for a year and a half. I was going to say, gonna, you, I think you're becoming an armchair academic about it, aren't you? I mean, at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, I think at some point I'm going to do an episode just about the like 10 things that have stuck with me that seem to be consistent. And and I haven't really finished forming my opinion about what uh, the relationship between attention deficit issues and anxiety and addiction is, but it's definitely there. You know, like I see it all the time. But um, anyway, uh I came here to play, I came here to go to college and then just, there were just bands everywhere and it was hot, you know, like, uh, bands were doing stuff. They were going out on the road and they were playing shows and I fell in with, uh, these two amazing musicians, a guy named Matt Hansen, who later went on to be in the psych rock band Daisy and a guy named John Rogers, who, um, is an amazing guitar player, but it's just stopped playing at some point. And, mm. Um, he had his own I'll let him tell his story. I'll probably get on my podcast at some point because he's such an interesting guy. And they had moved down from Seattle 
uh, like a year or two ahead of me and had been part of the nascent, like what eventually became, uh, came to be called grunge scene. Uh, and so they were really into loud, huge sounding guitars and me being sort of black flag circle jerks, Dead Kennedy's fan just fell right in with them. And we started playing this uh, sort of slower, louder, heavier proto grunge stuff. And then they were like, we need a bass player. And they were like, we can get Vic. And like, you know, I had this like idea of what they like. I pictured this guy Vic as this like, you know, monster bass player because the way they talked about it was so reverent. I was like, yeah. this guy, who is Vic? Oh, they're getting Vic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like yeah. one of those names. Like, oh, it's Vic. Oh, okay, watch out. Yeah. Oh, and God, they were so stoked. Like, Vic's gonna be our bass player. And I was like, imagine this black guy with a five string bass. You know, like, yeah. I had this whole other very naive, very like, you know, I'm from South Georgia, man, and like I had to outgrow a lot of preconceptions about art and race mm-hmm. and you know, um, and we'll get into that all sometime over coffee. But there's a lot of soft racism about who can play music and who can't in the South. Uh, it's a whole fucked up set of. Um, anyway, I don't want to get all that right now. Just suffice to say that I've worked really hard to outgrow a lot of those preconceptions. But when the door swung open, when Vic arrived, and it was this tiny elfin man. <laughs> yeah, right. Not in exactly a wheelchair. What you expected, yeah. Yeah, with a Gibson short scale SG bass in a sleeping bag. I was like, is this Vic? You know? And the band immediately went from being like a proto-grunge, super heavy band to being um, really dynamic. Like, I don't know if you saw any of the stuff. Um, so that band opened for Fugazi. Guy Picciotto saw uh, Vic for the first time that night. And when Guy was the music director for this, the last Vic Chestnut band before Vic took his own life. Yeah, yeah, because um, he was he was playing with them and uh, and right. uh, heavily involved with with his with his work. Yeah, what Guy worked so hard to recreate was was definitely um, it was what we were trying to do when he saw us the first time. From I that, think in that, that band in, in yeah. Angle Lake. Oh, all right, yeah, in Angle okay. Lake. So I feel like you know Guy's realization of it was better because they had a better drummer i was such a fucking little shit when i was 20 um i had two volumes uh which was uh either too loud or not playing and so (laughs) trying to adapt to vic's way of 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 structuring dynamics was different you know and i had to learn a lot from him and learn a lot in that band um but I, i i don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that that Guy was inspired by that show and went on to recreate it with Vic. It stuck with them, yeah. It made an impression. Yeah. And, and, you know, especially when you, when someone's got a wide body of work and you have someone that's kind of been there th- for the whole journey, you can kind of see certain things that maybe other folks wouldn't see if they kind of came in a little, like, later to the game yeah. uh, along those lines. But it, it's, it's, inter- it's interesting, too, because, I mean, those records are, they're great. Yeah, so it's yeah, super was, interesting. It's it's super. It's like almost hard to describe, but like that's some of my favorite yeah. bands are hard to describe. So that's you know that's a good good thing in my mind. It, Vic was sort of legendary. He had been in a band called the Lottie Dawes, which also one of the great. I don't know if you've ever heard a Southerner pretend to be impressed by something. They go, well, la <laughs> Um But you know the, the Lottie Dawes were a great Americana band that split off into Vic as the solo artist and the guys who became the uh, the um, Dashboard Saviors, a guy named Tom McBride, who's an absolutely brilliant songwriter, still lives here. I don't know if he plays anymore or not, but, man, Dashboard Saviors are amazing. Um, 
but Vic, like he had a reputation, but he wasn't doing a whole lot. And then Angle Lake happened, and then he had an accident where he was making spaghetti one night, and he went to take a boiling pot of water off the stove and spilled it into his wheelchair, and gave himself horrible burns. And um, yeah, and that was the end of Angle Lake. Like uh, Vic had to go into physical therapy and stuff, and we stopped practicing and kind of drifted apart. But um, it wasn't too long after Vic recovered from that injury that Michael Stipe took an interest and uh, got with a local engineer and they made Little the first Vic Chestnut record and uh, that was the beginning of Vic's sort of sort of uh, career or uh, kind of rise to prominence as a, as a one of the great singer-songwriters from Athens, Georgia. Ah, that's real interesting. Okay, so and then you meet you meet up with uh, with Mike and, and 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 Dan. So, what was your first impression of these fellows? That these five eight guys when when they came when they came. You know, the first time I saw five eight, Mike Mantiani was playing a, a bowling ball strat. If you look up bowling <laughs> ball strat on Reverb, there's uh-huh. a picture of one in the header, and it's Mike's old guitar. You can see where the duct tape was and covered up, like part of the horn of the top of the guitar where his strap was. Um, he had duct tape because he had a shitty strap, and once it was duct taped on, that was good enough, and he left it. So there's sun damage on the rest of the body, and then there's one dark spot. And um, we traded that guitar for a Gibson at Thoroughbred Music uh, in Tampa, Florida, like a million years ago. But um, Mike was playing a bowling ball strat through a Fender Twin that was just dimed. And um, it... Uh, it sounded like Bob Mould's guitar to me. Uh, they were yeah. instantly my, my favorite band. Like, I just loved it. What's interesting, because I don't think that's what Bob... I think he played a Flying V through uh, an acoustic, like, solid-state bass head. But somehow, Mike's guitar sound sounded like Husker Du, and I was in for life. You were, you were like, in, yeah, yeah. So it, and, it's, and it's funny, because one of those things that, that I feel like, you know, basements, twins, whatever, like, there, there's this whole sound that is just, like... One of those nice old fenders just cranked to obscene volume, and it's right. you, and it's it's something that I'm sure nobody conceived of when that was being made that anybody would be doing it. I mean, I, I played with a Fender Quad in my band Replicator, and and, and that thing's mm-hmm. like a fridge, you know, because yeah. it's, it's a twin, but there's two other speakers to it, and it's in like a bigger box. So right. imagine how that works for venues with say stairs and things along those lines. It's like oh, you're helping God. a friend move every night you're going to go play. Right, right. Uh, we moved that twin, and Mike ended up running the twin. He bypassed the two by twelve and went into a four by twelve Marshall cabinet for a long time. That sounded really good. Yeah, Close back cabinet with the twin took the volume down a little bit behind him where I was, which was thankfully because I didn't <laughs> probably a welcome relief. Right? Yeah, I didn't wear hearing protection until the until the twenty first century, oh, which is part of why uh, my right. podcast is so loud. Um, my guy, come like, on, yeah, <laughs> you know you know better than that. Um, so. Yeah, Dan Horowitz is such a character, man. Born in Brooklyn, raised upstate, like talks really kind of like Rocky Balboa, right. but incredible, <laughs> sure, yeah. incredibly funny guy. Um, and then later we added Sean Dunn from, from New Orleans as a lead guitar player so Mike could focus on rhythm and lyrics. And, and that band, we did 200 shows a year from about 1992 to 1996 or 7. And then we had 150 show years on either side of that, so... You know, yeah, because that's what I remember. Is I, I was always, and again, it's hard to describe for folks that that 
weren't around for that time and, and playing because it wasn't like how it was now. It was like, oh, there's our Instagram post of all their tour dates or whatever. But I was always hearing about five eight. Five eight was playing here. Five eight was playing there. You know, it was, I was like, oh man, these guys are these guys are busy. And, and I knew from I, I had like a tape of you guys. And the thing that the thing I remember most, and I, I guess it was the uh, it was the EP. I was like, oh, like that uh, depressed all the time. That was the song. Uh, where I was, right. I was like, damn, like, like that's just putting it out there. Like, and, and it was also just a good song of like, wow, it's amazing. This could be so sparse, but work. And it was fascinating yeah. to me. We really embraced, um, we had a really hard time making records for a long time because we didn't really know how to do it. Yeah. And because at the time you didn't have a Pro Tools rig in your garage or anything. So <laughs> right. exactly. You, you couldn't only... just record it on, on your phone and, <laughs> And upload right. it to so, Bandcamp, and away you go. Right. So the o- only, right, the only interactions we had with recording were in studios to tape, and it was incredibly expensive, and we were all really neurotic and fucked up at the time. So, it took us a long time to figure out how to record, but we got in the studio eventually with Ed Stasium, uh, who of course is uh, the Ramones. Uh, right. Talking Heads. Yeah. He came. I don't know if you were aware of this, but Ed Stasium is a forum member and has posted on the forum. Um, you know, just to basically I did know that slap, and I forgot it. Yeah, I remember yeah. this. I, this is that was actually a pretty. Uh, I hesitate to use the word epic, but kind of epic moment when. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> when that's what it's yeah. like. Oh, check it out. <laughs> yeah, there was uh, for people who aren't familiar with what we're talking about. There was a thread on Electrical Audio Forum about recording the Talking Heads, and somebody was saying that someone had been brought in to overdub all of Tina Weymouth's parts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and the, one of the most appreciated trash talking, basically. Yeah. Well, but you know who that's, what's his name? Bon Jovi, the guy who's allegedly the producer on that record. I'll throw some big air quotes up here that you can't see. Yeah. Um, John Bon Jovi's uncle or whatever. And, um, you know, that's the guy who always says, oh, yeah, we ought to bring somebody in. And Ed Stasium pops into the fucking forum and he's like, look, man, you were out in the studio lobby looking at, uh, private airplane catalogs while I was making this record and every one of those bass lines is Tina Weymouth. Shut the fuck up. It was like, whoa. Yeah, that, that was like, that, that was an incredible moment. That was an incredible takedown. I, I love that so much. I forgot about that. I'm still in touch with Ed periodically. Um, he's he's on social media. We we uh I've made a couple of jokes on his page that fell completely flat. <laughs> then I had like send him a message apologizing, saying I don't really I don't really think that people who hate Ringo Starr are pedophiles. I just said that. Like, you know, I had to clarify. <laughs> um, we regret the but, error. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's out there in California still making records. Uh, and he's got some stuff coming up this week. I'll, I'll re- if, you, if we're friends on social media, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share some of his announcements. He's doing a bunch of interviews about the anniversary of uh, End of the Century, I think. The Ramones record is like. Nice. Yeah. Um, and also amazing guy. So we went in the studio with that stadium and he knew how to make records. He wasn't letting us fuck around. You know, yeah, he wasn't looking at uh, private airplane catalogs. He was, he was right. Ready. It's just not to say that the people we work with before, I mean, we work with Dave Barbie, um, but it was his first full length LP and we were psychopaths. And um, <laughs> like Dave Barbie is from the Steve Albini school of I'm an audio engineer and uh, I'm not here to produce. I'm here to, for you to make a record. But we didn't know how. <laughs> right. We didn't know I, how. I, I'm here for you to articulate your vision, and you're like, well, we're fighting about what the vision is right now. Yeah, our vision is is one guy uh, 
tries to drive while screaming and everyone else tries to grab the wheel. So that's our, <laughs> exactly. that's our vision. That's, that's, that's the vision. All right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, Ed, Ed made that record and it's the best sounding five, eight record in my opinion. Um, although I think the best material and some of the best drumming sadly is the five, eight record I'm not on. Um, so I was in that band for all you, of the nineties. Cause you left, uh, it was like 98 or something. You left for a little bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I had a little like uh, nine year lost weekend. Uh, I, I, uh, my mental illness and then depression and was only compounded by, uh, by having a major label deal. Like it was not good for my brain. And, uh, mm, mm. and we put out a record, uh, on Walter Yetnikoff, you know, from Hitman fame, you know, CBS red label, yeah. like, uh, you know, uh, Columbia records, super record guy. Uh, we were on his new label and they sold like a thousand records after spending literally a quarter of a million dollars making. Woof. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so it was just such a shit show. And there was all this pressure like, Hey, we spent, a, we spent $250,000 making this record. And of course, five, eight had been touring at that point nonstop since 1992, literally nonstop. Yeah. And, uh, and then they told us like, well, you can't tour for X number of months until the record comes out. And then they couldn't get their shit together to get the record out. And so we were like going under in our lives, in our private lives, we were losing everything. And it's just the fucking pressure was crazy. And so. And I'm going to need one. all the younger listeners that are listening to this to realize when they bitch about how <laughs> tough things are now that think, think about situations like this, because this is, this was really how it was. And it, it wasn't all it wasn't all wine and roses, folks. And look, the only people nostalgic for the record industry of the '90s are the like two percent of people that actually recouped their advances and went on to like make money. Everybody else just got like put through the grinder. Various and, stages uh, of boned, or they found a weird sustain like sustainable loophole that they shifted through for a short period of time before moving on. Yeah, my favorite stories uh, span from um, I think they're from Austin. And I can't remember if they're 16 volt or 16 horsepower because there were two bands with 16. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So 16 horsepower is the more kind of almost like Americana-ish one, and 16 volt is the more like kind of industrial one. If I remember, I played with one of them. I don't remember which one though. Oh no shit. So anyway, they got a record label, they got a major label deal, and then their A and R guy split. And rather than go through the whole, they had a two record, like two with an option for three or more or whatever deal. Rather than go through that whole hellish process. Um, I think Ray's right. Ray in the chat box said 16 horsepower. I think it is 16 horsepower. They that's, they that, just that right, yeah. they just took a buyout. Like they were like, we don't feel like making another record for whatever it was, Atlantic or Lava or, or whatever. It's just because they know, knew there was they could kind of see the writing on the wall for how that was. Oh God, out, smartest right? thing ever. Yeah, yeah. Like that's those, <laughs> someone in that band is a fucking genius. And they let's, took let's that save money. ourselves two years of misery here. <laughs> yeah, and they just bought a studio, built a studio with that money, and became. Like self-sufficient. I'm so proud of that band. Yeah, we play with them. That's smart as hell, man. That, that's so smart. I don't remember if we played with them at the Lincoln Tap Room or the Empty Bottle, but it was one of those clubs in uh, Chicago, and they told us that whole story, and I was just like, "Wow!" Um, yeah, at the me- in the meantime, yeah, our <laughs> lives are being ruined by the expectations of a major label. So, yeah, and um, then they're telling you not to tour. And just to be clear, uh, to reiterate, I mean, you're, you're Five Years a band that toured a lot. Like that, that was a thing. You're known for being like a touring act, yeah, the audience. Uh, you know, yeah. It, Generally speaking, when you got a band and you got a label, it's kind of nice when you can have them tour. It's even better if they want to tour and don't have to be cajoled and like talked into. But in this case, they were like, "No, we don't want you to do that." Man, 
I hope that uh, next week, everybody. Uh, so I, I just did an episode um, that hasn't come out yet with a, a, a woman from uh, Muscle Shoals uh, named Hannah Aldridge, and she is she is the hardest working um, woman in rock and roll right now, and does most of her touring in Europe, and is on the road like 180 days a year. And she's a, a great interview. We had a really good talk, but right now she's like in an apartment in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, outside of Nashville, like just counting the minutes until she yeah, can get exactly. back home. Yeah. <laughs> Stare, staring at the wall, watching the clock. Tick, tick, yeah. Tick. She's funny and insightful, and uh, it's just got that like fucking punk rock work ethic, even though she's mostly an Americana performer. But like, you know, sleeping in anarchist commune squats in – Germany and Sweden and like touring constantly. I, I was so impressed with her. I'm really glad I talked to her. But so I left five, eight, 1998 after it became clear that the label that we were signed to that we had basically handed our lives over to, wasn't ever going to get it's, it, it's a uh, finger out and uh, like do the job of being a record label. Right. And I was burnt and um, was dealing with my own mental health stuff and, uh, and quit five, eight and on, uh, I think New Year's Eve of 1999 or New, New sorry, New Year's Eve, 1998, like the next day was the first day of 1999. And, um, and then I started doing a lot of session work, which was surprising. Um, a more, uh, modern rock and Americana stuff than you'd expect from a guy who was basically a, like a, a uh, what would you call the replacements? Five, eight, like power pop. Yeah. Punk. I mean, it's post punk. It's funny because all I feel like all the genre definitions have shifted <laughs> since like I was yeah. in a, working at a record store. I, I mean, it's almost easier just to say like you know loud, kind of weird rock band uh, at this point. But it, 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 I mean, modern rock <laughs> used to be a thing. College rock used to not mean necessarily like what what it came to mean. But I, th- I feel like if you say indie rock now, people think of uh, you know something entirely different, and it's it's. It's difficult, but ultimately a rock band with like kind of with weird influence and a powerful live presentation, but kind of no, a little no, on the noisy side, but not necessarily like yeah. noise rock necessarily. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you know, there was elements of we were all listening to Fugazi and listening to Jesus yeah. Lizard, listening to Big Black, listening to to Shellac, but um, it mean, wasn't necessarily. What was coming through our speakers, you know? Right. I mean, it, it's almost like I think Five Eight kind of occupied a similar space, like almost like Arches of Loaf in a certain way. In the fact, oh, that, and we toured with them. Yeah, and, and that makes absolute sense, right? Like there was there was common cause there, but it's like when you say like, oh yeah, they're an indie rock band. It's like ah, oh, but unless you kind of knew at the time, you think going to think it's going to be something totally different because there's some yeah. some heft to what they're doing. Like there's some yeah. like, there's some weight behind that. Yeah. Well, a part of that is just my absolutely bottomless well of rage that I play from. <laughs> you know? Like if I ever have to like really shove my way through a show and hit really hard, like I can always drop the bucket down and be like, Oh look, it's full of anger. So <laughs> like there's never any doubt that I'm going to be able to draw from river it. of rage. Yep. Yeah. So, so, but you're, you're doing these sessions and you're, yeah. and, and you're playing not necessarily what people would know you from, from that band, but you yeah. learn, you learn some dynamics along the way. You kind of, you know, learn maybe not, mm-hmm. you don't have to go 110% the entire time necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, you know, I, I started going to Nashville some and doing some sessions there. Um, was there the was mindset a- like, I'm just going to try this out and see what happens or was it? 
you know, was there even any plan behind it necessarily at all? I mean, I went back to school. I got, I got, I finished my degree uh, that I dropped out of, uh, and then was like, what am I gonna do? With, I, there was a long period of time. Um, I, I, I think that my first marriage was sort of predicated upon the assumption that I was always gonna be like a famous rock guy, and uh, and when I like veered sharply off that course. Um, that marriage fell apart. And, uh, so I kind of spent a couple of years just wondering if I was a failure. Like that was really hard. Like I was, you know, I talked about this in my interview with Victor Krumenacher a little bit because he left, uh, Camper Van Beethoven at the peak of their popularity. And, you know, it's a thing when you walk away from the thing that you're known for, like, did I, there's a question like, did I just peak? Was that it? Like, yeah, it's a big part of your life. Like it's a definitional thing that yeah. people think of when they think of you things like that yeah yeah and also i think the myth that nearly killed me was that i felt like it was supposed to be fun like you get this idea on the outside looking in that being in a band is a lot of fun and i'm not going to say that there aren't moments of fun but it's also it's a lot of work i mean if you're gonna like try to do a thing you know try to make your living as a musician um there's definitely going to be days where you're like huh i don't think i've had a hot meal in a week or you know and so I, I mean the year i think it was 1995 between new year's eve we played we played athens georgia new year's eve and then we played like june 3rd which is a couple of days after my birthday and between those two days i slept in my own bed six times <laughs> right yeah <laughs> you're just gone that much you and, got a place to hang your hat for a couple of days and then you're Back yeah. on the road. I, yeah. I would come home. I would sleep for 24 hours because, you know, touring is exhausting. Um, I would just get out of bed to, to go make coffee and come right back to bed and get up to piss and go back to bed. And um, and then I'd have a day where I would kind of bonk around town and uh, see some people, go to the record store, spend some of what money I had on my pocket uh, because you had to buy music back then. Um, and then right back out on the road. Like Sunday morning, like meeting at Mike's house, got to drive to Tallahassee or whatever, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I said I definitely don't regret any of it, but I I wish I had had in my head that it was a job and that I should be okay with the fact that sometimes it was. It's not. There was a lot. Of, yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's going to be more work than it's going to be fun. Yeah, yeah it's going to be difficult. And um, but also like one of the things I've learned from talking to a million musicians uh, for mental health podcasts and also living in a town with some bands that have done really well is that uh, you don't always stay friends. And, yeah. you know, five eights been really lucky in that we like after I, there was a couple of years where we didn't speak after I left the band, everybody was really mad at me. Um, and I was really mad at everybody. We really burnt out on each other. And then uh, some water went under the bridge and some time went by and the guy who replaced me in the band went out to LA for a gig uh, and they called me and asked me if I could fill in for a few gigs. That was 2007. I've now been back in 5'8", longer than I was in 5'8", the first time. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. And uh, we were able to patch up our friendships, and we're now closer, I think, than we ever were. Uh, and um, But I, I think a lot of bands, like, I, don't know, I, can't, I, I think I've been violating some people's anonymity if I started calling names, but, like, Let's just say that the 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 post Uncle Tupelo split, uh, where those two guys won't talk to each other anymore, is a lot more common than you might think. Right. It's just that that happens to be dudes that 
are are well known enough that people are oh did you hear that they don't talk anymore you know like yeah. <laughs> it's just because yeah. it's discussed and uh, kind of like a bigger deal doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that doesn't happen on a on a much smaller level now I I know a thing or two about that yeah 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 so you're discovering like a whole different side to playing drums almost though by like not being yeah. part of that unit being part of five eight like what what, what kind of what ways pushed your playing and, and pushed your life in kind of surprising directions through that time period i always had a really broad listening palette growing up in south georgia in a town that um well this is a whole the racial history of columbus georgia where i grew up is really fascinating uh in many ways it has the largest black middle class uh in the south outside of atlanta because there's a whole a retired NCO community there because of Fort Benning being right there. So like we had, um, in the same way that Detroit, Cleveland and, and, uh, other towns had black middle classes because of GM. Uh, and because of that, we had sixties R and B from Detroit and we had seventies R and B from Cleveland because, you know, a middle class will, will have time to create art. Right. And so there was there was an R and B scene in Columbus, and so I grew up uh, subbing uh, in clubs where, I, you know, I had to sneak in because I was just a kid, and I was playing Cool in the Gang and Gap Band and um, a lot of '60s R and B like Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, um, and you know, and then I had my little garage punk band with my friend Ben Burdett, who uh, we had a punk band called Sinister Dreams, and. Um, you know, I was just a weird duality going on, uh, and I, I when I was in five eight, we would ride around in the van, and and after about a year or two, like we kind of got a little tired of angry white guys with guitars on the van. <laughs> so, I mean, dudes yelling as we call it within uh, my camp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or my wife calls it mad at dad music. Yeah, yeah, D- uh, dudes yelling music, mad at dad music, it all amounts to the same. Yeah. <laughs> So we got really into hip hop and really into um, jazz. Sean Dunn, the lead guitar player of Five Eight, is from New Orleans and is sort of an amateur jazz historian. And so he turned us all into City Bechet and and a lot of the early uh, uh, Charlie Parker stuff and um, a lot of New Orleans jazz, a lot of New Orleans funk, like the Meters, Lee Dorsey, uh, and. And I mean, I, I can't help it. I'm Appalachian, but I didn't, I, I'm not, I wasn't born in South Georgia. My family's from North Carolina and I'm going to go home and spend time with my grandparents. And then there's a little AM radio that they had in the kitchen that would always be playing the Opry. So, you know, Kitty Wells, uh, Buck Owens, um, you know, all that great classic country Johnny Cash, of course. And, um, so, man, I, I grew up listening to everything and, Loving to play everything, and if you look at my podcast, like my guest list is wild. It's oh like yeah, because it, it's not—it's not just like oh, this is uh, representing this style of music. Like you got mm-hmm. you got folks from all over that are in there, and that's I think one of the strengths of that show because it's a universal construct, right? It's something that folks, whether they speak about it or not, are affected by, and it doesn't matter if you <laughs> play in a band that sounds like the Melvins, or if you play in a band that sounds like Hank Williams, like, you know, you still are dealing with the same kinds yeah. of things, and yeah. it is that, that kind of universal unifying thing in the way that, you know, frankly, not a lot, there's not a lot of that in life uh, until this pandemic, you know, quarantine's pretty yeah. unifying, everyone's, everyone's in the same Let's be honest, there. though. Like classic country music is just rural emo. 
Like, let's, <laughs> you know, for sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I ended up kind of learning to play a little of everything. Uh, I've never been a great straight ahead jazz player. And a couple of years ago, I started taking lessons to try to get better at that. And because Brian Blade, I think, is just absolutely brilliant. I don't know if you know him. He's a, a drummer and arranger and composer uh, from Shreveport, Louisiana, but lives now in New Orleans. And he's got a sextet. And if you ever have a chance to check out Brian Blade's sextet live at the Chicago Music Exchange, there's like a 21 minute like improvisational piece that they play that is possibly one of the most transcendental pieces of music I've ever heard in my entire life. And I really want to play like Brian Blade. God, I do so much, but I just don't, I don't have those chops, man. It's, it's really sad sometimes. Um, but like, yeah, I started doing session work, a lot of country stuff, a lot of Americana stuff. Um, there's an artist from Nashville who, uh, was sort of a legacy artist. He's one of the sixties, like guitar players that that song Nashville Cats was written about. Uh, just one of the great guitar players of all time. His name's Matt Gaden, and um, and he saw me play one time. This is one of my favorite stories, and it's going to sound like I'm trying to 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 blow my own horn here, um, but it's just such a crazy story. I was in a southern rock band called Southern Bitch. We played uh, on top of the mountain um, in uh, uh, Boone, North Carolina. I think it was Boone. Anyway, after the show, this guy came backstage and he had this wonderful accent. He sounded like a cross between an old hippie and a Kentucky colonel. And he walked over to me and he's like, hey, man, I, I really love the way you play drums, man. Your mommy, an old friend of mine. And at the time, I was going through my divorce and I was in a really low place. And, I, uh, and I've talked about this on the forum some. I was like, I'm going to just play like Kenny Buttry. Uh, the Nashville session guy who played, he was part of the Stray Gators who played on the Neil Young album Harvest. And like, there's places on that record where I don't, I think he's literally sitting on his right hand. It's just kick, kick, <laughs> snare. Like sparse in a way that like, I was trying to capture that feeling where you just run out of gas at the end of every measure, like where the one takes forever to drop on the next measure because it's just so world weary because that's where my head was at. So I'm playing a Southern rock band where I get to really stretch out that set of skills, but also like they had some rockers too. So I could like use some of the five, eight stuff that I developed as a skill set over all those years. But Southern bitch plays in Boone and this sweet old hippie guys like, man, I'd love y'all come up here and jam sometime. I'm like, I'd love to, I'll come up and sit in with your grateful dead band or whatever, man. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you're up um, to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so like six months goes by and I get the call like, we're working on a record for this singer-songwriter girl I like. Just come on up and play, man. And um, <laughs> like back then, you, you print the directions. Uh, oh, yeah. Off, well, I remember it yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Map quest I follow the directions <laughs> right up to the front door of Blackbird Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, which is, for people who don't know, is the fucking room. Like it's the 64-channel yeah, yeah. SSL. That's the place. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I walked in the door and like – there's this old hippie dude, Mac, behind the console. And, um, like, it was a knee knocking. I just got the yips so bad. I was like a p pitcher who comes in in the 11th inning and starts throwing balls in the backstop. Like, I could barely play. It, we finally took a break, and I was like, Mac, what am I doing here, man? This, like, that's oddly free. That's the fucking guitar player for the Dixie Chicks. And I'm in a session with this guy. He's like, man, you don't worry about a thing, man. I like the way you play, you know? So I stuck it out, and it was cool. But, like, 
By the way, the friend of Max that I reminded him of was Kenny fucking Buttry. Like, they had been best friends. No joke. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I had been doing my best Kenny Buttry invitation, and apparently I, I got close enough and I caught the attention. <laughs> close, close enough to make it fly, huh? That's Have a, you seen uh, – I, I realize this podcast isn't just about the PRF, but there's a thread about Kenny Buttry on the Electrical Audio Forums um, where I talked about how much how much I loved his playing. And Tim from Silkworm, um, Tim Majette, talked about how much he loved Kenny Buttry. And then Kenny Buttry's daughter pops up in the thread. No joke. Cause like, no wow, joke. that's wild. Okay. No, yeah, I, I, think like, I, I think I missed that one, which is funny. Oh, no, just – Buttery looks like it's buttery, B-U-T-T-R-E-Y. And, um, yeah, she was just thrilled to death that people were saying nice things about her dad all these years after he passed. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's that's awesome, yeah. man. That's, so, but it's it's great to have that, you know, someone's got, like, going to vouch for you, right? They, they're they're going to they're, they're yeah. gonna. Mac used me on a bunch of sessions. Give, and, give uh, you give I'll, you big ups. Give you, give you, give, yeah. just, sometimes, especially when you're dealing with situations where, like, maybe you're in your head about stuff and mm-hmm. not being your own biggest advocate to have somebody on the outside be like, no, you got this. Like that, that's yeah, huge. Can we, can we talk about that for a minute? Getting in your own head when you're trying to play in a new situation? Oh yeah. <laughs> I yeah, mean, that's, my, that's, that's a real, it, it is real. The psychedelic first gig, I got called for that's that gig. That's what I on, was going to ask next. Yeah. Next, by so the way, Wednesday so. night, I get a call from Hugo Burnham from Gang of Four and he's like, Tigger, I, 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 he's one of the people who still calls me Tigger. Desperately needs you for something, man. And um, it, he was supposed to do the Psychedelic First 2007 North American tour um, because the guy, Frank, that uh, was the drummer with Richard Butler from Psychedelic First, a solo band, was supposed to do the, sh- the tour, but he was on retainer with Guns N' Roses. Hugo was supposed to come in and play. Uh, and then Hugo's father... Uh, became gravely ill with pancreatic cancer and his prognosis was will not survive the summer. So Hugo had to fly to England and he called me on Wednesday for a tour starting the next Monday. (laughs) Yeah, not exactly an abundance of of preparation time. And I was like, cool, I I can learn like 12 songs in a couple of days, you know. So they sent me songs, it's 22 songs. And, um, And it like... The management team had sent me 22 songs that they thought I should learn. Then I got there. So I, I get the call Wednesday. I have to run around my whole life on Thursday, go to my boss, my wife, you know, um, my other bands, and be like, okay, I think I'm going to be gone for the next five months. And um, and everybody was like, it's the Psychedelic Furs band. Yeah. So <laughs> go. Yeah. <laughs> I have like one two-hour session in a storage locker where I have a set of drums set up with a set of headphones on and, and like just – bash through all the songs but i have the handrail of there being a drummer on the songs um so that's thursday fly friday uh afternoon first rehearsal is saturday afternoon and i can't breathe like i walk into the room and there's richard butler sitting on the couch playing sodoku you know uh with pad and pen and there's tim his brother and mars Mars Williams, the saxophone player, has been psychedelic like, first since the 90s. And uh, Amanda Kramer, who was the keyboard player and Information Society, is on keys on that gig. And I just – I looked around the room and I thought, what am I doing here? I'm yeah. the punk rock drummer from 5A. I don't – what the <laughs> fuck am I doing here? Right, yeah. <laughs> because I walked into a record store in like 1983 or four. I was like 16 years old. And I walked in the front door – 
like a Southern rock, ACDC, Iron Maiden, heavy metal kid. And there was a record playing and instantly changed my life. I was like, what is this amazing music? And it was talk, talk, talk. It's like the first record. I couldn't believe how much I loved Richard Butler's vocals instantly. And, and then here I am. It's just like 20 years later. And I'm <laughs> right. I'm in the, in the band. And, 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 and I just and you got to reconcile those ideas that this is this is this music that yeah. you listen to this is this band you like and and then you got to reconcile mm-hmm. the idea of your playing and like you're there, and just, what that means. I went straight up my own ass, just like got scared, <laughs> and could not calm down. And uh, I I blogged about. It. I used to have a web blog at wasuvi.com w a s u v i dot com and I haven't updated it in years. But there's a whole psychedelic first tour diary from that experience, and I was not in a good place. <laughs> It took me a minute to settle down. Like, uh, by the third or fourth show, things were starting to click. But the first couple of shows, man, I was fucking shaky. And I bet there was a moment where they were like, oh, God, what are we going to do with this guy? Like, you know. Um, but then, like, by the middle of the tour, it was just running like a Swiss watch. But, uh, but yeah, I, I struggle with anxiety a lot. I talk, When I talked to David Pajo in this current episode of Crash and Ride, I asked him because he played with a bunch of his heroes. Oh, like, yeah. He was, he he was at one point, <laughs> two at the same time, two of his favorite bands. Yeah, you know? Tortoise and Stereolab. <laughs> and I asked him, like, were you nervous about that? And he said, uh, no, nah, they were just friends of mine. You know, to me, they were peers. And I was like, yeah, I was not a peer to Richard Butler. Like, <laughs> I was just, by the time that, sh- that tour was midway through, I had settled in and was just like every night felt like a million bucks playing President Gas. Come on, man. I fucking love that song so much when yeah, I was yeah. 15. And, uh, you know, love my way. And uh, I mean, every night we would come out and do pretty in pink as the encore or near the end of the set. And, you know, the first few of those guitar chords ring out and like 15, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Coded 15,000 people would go insane. I've never experienced anything like that. And I would not pretend to ever think that I felt like I deserved it even for a minute to be up there. But like I was on the ride for a minute and it was amazing. So, I had some of the same kind of yips stuff. I, last year I was out with Chuck Lavelle from the Allman Brothers and the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And um, that was nerve-rattling. Uh, I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I can write charts and I can practice and all that, but there's still a moment on stage where I, I, my heart's racing and I'm, I have terrible imposter syndrome. So. Well, I appreciated I that you, know, you had the episode – with Fez where you went into that and I thought that was a really powerful episode. Yeah. Fez, Fez Rousey, uh, <laughs> Chicago musician, uh, plays like all those instruments that you see hanging uh, on the walls, uh, in, in music stores that are frequented by people who, um, drink more tea than coffee. And, and are from, <laughs> yeah, yeah, know, right. Yeah. The, like the Baroque ones. <laughs> yeah. Oud, uh, like, you know, these crazy, like that guy can play anything with strings on it. Yeah. And, you know, plays a plays um, guitar like a champion with crazy like, like uh, I can, d- diatonic tuning. I don't even know how to describe it. Like some crazy Middle Eastern scale, and, and he just makes it. Just he's so talented. Speaks like six languages. You know, uh, and I, I did not expect that guy, one of those brilliant human beings on the planet, one of the most absolutely lightning fast minds I've ever met, to be like. Yeah, I have terrible imposter syndrome. It's like, what? So that's why episode four of Crash and Ride is April Fool's of 
2019 where I talked to Fez about imposter syndrome. Uh, I, you know, some of the most talented people I've ever met will quietly confide to, to you that like, they often wonder like, what am I doing here? Why am I up here? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think so many like, man, there was one guy I was supposed to interview for the podcast. You asked me who I've turned down. I've turned down two people one of whom I just never responded to and the other who I just flatly said I'm not interested in talking to you. Um, but um, there's one guy who uh, apparently had some anxiety and depression and um, I was, we we're trying to line up a time for me to talk to him because uh, until COVID-19, I, I did 90% of these interviews in person. I wasn't really a big fan of the phone interview. Um, I've been forced to kind of go over to the Skype side because I can't go sit with people. But um trying to get on the same page and be in the same room with this guy and um like i don't know i found something about the guy kind of off-putting as i was sort of following him on social media and he was uh he was talking shit about some of the gigs that he'd gotten and i was like he was too good for these gigs huh. and i was like like an ego Bruh. yeah yeah oh yeah like whatever the opposite of imposter syndrome is. I guess it's called the Dunning-Kruger <laughs> Dunning effect. Right, um, yeah. That, I think that would, yeah, there you go. Yeah, and then the straw that broke the camel's back is he started like some anti-Black Lives Matter, pro-Trump oh, bullshit. I was like, right. eject, eject, eject. Like, you're not coming on my fucking show. Sorry. And uh, But more than like that, I mean, I could probably find something to talk about with a guy who is um, – Maybe we could actually have a conversation and ha could help him see see how wrong he is. But, um, but the thing I found really off putting was that I, I just like anybody who thinks they're too too good for a gig. I, I just don't I don't connect with the people like that. Like I'm so grateful every opportunity I get to sit down and play music that I don't want to ever feel like I'm slumming it with a bunch of other musicians. That's just dumb. Can you take, talk a little bit about the most incredible Pinky Doodle Poodle? And how that all came to pass, because come to realize we haven't actually talked about that band at all yet. Pinky Doodle Poodle is a is a is a as they describe it, high energy rock band from Tokyo, Japan. Uh, it's uh, all the words um, in that sentence are true. Yeah, George and Yuria. Uh, George is possibly the greatest guitar player I've ever played with, and I've played with some fucking like serious players, but he's just so good. And Yuria plays, you know, an EB zero. Uh, Gibson SG bass and sings at the same time and is just an absolute like tiny hurricane of a human being on stage and they opened for us with a different drummer a really amazing drummer named Jake Haggard who now is in the process of moving out to um, Fort Worth Texas to work for the rodeo no shit um, <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah he's a really good drummer they opened for 5-8 in Tampa Florida at um, the New World Brewery which is a place we've played for years. Tampa has always been a good place for 5-8 and will continue to be so once, I'm sure, once um, quarantine ends. But they came out, and if I had one iota less confidence in 5-8, I would have been like, all right, let's just go home. There's no way to follow this band. They are <laughs> so good. It's like one of those things where the band is, yeah, the band's so good that you're like, well, damn, all right. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that was I, great, but... Okay, let's roll. <laughs> yeah, they, I, I, oh Jesus, they were good. And Jake's a great drummer, metal guy. So just 
you know, those crazy shredder chops that even uh, in metal carry over to the drums too. And, um, man, I was just absolutely transfixed. And I thought this is one of the greatest bands I've ever seen. And then like they were sort of trying to work out where they were going to live. Cause they were sort of staying with, with Jake at the time he was like maybe talking about moving to Indianapolis or Nashville. And Dan was like, you can come to Athens, stay at my house and fuck if they didn't do it. Like they drove straight through at the end of that <laughs> tour and showed up at Dan's house. And, um, they asked me to play drums with them. And, um, I learned about once again, 17 songs in four days. And, uh, and then started hitting the road heavy with them. Five eight, you know, everybody's got jobs and kids, and um, yeah, it's a different spot than it was when uh, you, you were hitting yeah. it as younger men, right? So yeah, but but Pinky Doodle Poodle has no such encumbrances, and so <laughs> we started playing five six nights a week. And um, by the time we hit the PRF Barbecue uh, summer of two thousand nineteen, that band had played like thirty of the last sixty or thirty of the last forty five days, like just constant touring and they're both such great performers and great players and um we, <laughs> we played that set and we we rolled in on the second day or third day of the prf barbecue unloaded all the merch played the set and then the next morning packed up all the merch we sold exactly 666 dollars worth of merchandise <laughs> i forgot about that that's amazing yeah um <laughs> and then went on to i guess milwaukee next wherever we went there. it wasn't milwaukee i don't think they played milwaukee yet but um yeah, unfortunately, like by the end of that summer, they had run out of their original visa and had to leave the country and reapply yeah. uh, to get their new visa. And um, so they were out of the country from like late September until the end of February this year. And then we were supposed to go to South by Southwest. I was going to play, I think, four shows with Pinky Doodle Poodle that week, three or four shows with Five Eight two shows with this trip hop band from new Delhi that I met with five, eight played in India called Komarebi, And then three or four shows with another band from new Delhi called, uh, men who pause. And, um, <laughs> uh, what's that? It's like 12, 15. I don't know how many gigs I was supposed to play that week. And so pinky doodle poodle, we had three practices and we, I mean, never missed a step. We just drop right back in smoke and practices, learn some new material, ready to go. And then they cancel South by Southwest because of the yep. coronavirus. So they are sitting at at at, at um they they're renting a room uh, from a friend of mine, um, and they are unable to tour and unable to play, and their visa is up in like June. Like it sucks. A whole man. raison d'etre for coming. Yeah, you know you can't do it. There's just on ice right now. We did a couple of little fundraisers so they didn't starve to death. You know, like we sold some flyers from a show that got canceled that was a really cool flyer that Sean Dunn from 5A did. And um, they're going to put some merchandise up on the Crash and Ride website soon so you can buy Pinky Doodle Poodle t-shirts and and vinyl and stuff. But, um, man, this whole quarantine thing is just fucking bogus. It sucks. It is, and... There's a cost to it that I think we're not necessarily going to have be immediately apparent. And you know, I, I so when quarantine when quarantine started, I think I did one or two episodes in March, maybe early April. I think Maurice Ricard, uh, the 
uh, composer and, and um, guitar player from Pittsburgh was the last interview I did. And I just fell into a funk, man. I felt unproductive. I didn't want to talk to anybody about their art because I just was felt so beaten and thwarted. Yeah. Like, you know, I'd worked so hard to help Pinky Doodle Poodle get back into the country and then we couldn't play any shows. And I was also dealing with a lot of fear. Like I, at the time, we didn't know how the virus was. Nobody like, did. It, it seemed yeah. to change almost every hour. <laughs> Yeah, and you know. people were dying, and um, and I was just staying home. I started working in the garden, which probably saved my life. Like in the in the March, I was like, "Well, I've got this big piece of dirt, and I've I've got um a big piece of land, and so I I started planting vegetables and and kind of trying to figure out a way through all this, and started playing guitar every night. Um, I play guitar just about every night in 2020 so far. I can't really play drums late at night because loud noises upset my kid. And, and I don't have a kit set up in the garage yet. But I'm um, playing guitar. And then, like, I kept hearing about people committing suicide and people dying of, of drug overdoses or drinking themselves to death. Yeah. And and I was like, man, this is so bad. It's going to kill so many musicians. And, like, also people in the film industry. I have tons of friends uh, in Atlanta who were working in the film industry and yeah, I just started getting scared, you know, and then a couple of people reached out at me and were like, uh, my buddy Nick, who's, uh, works and lives in Chicago, um, was like, sure would like to hear some crash and ride episodes, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I sort of, Nick sort of, just the fact that he cared at all, maybe kind of like pull my head out of my ass and, and start like, all right, I, I could do this, and I started reaching out to people, and you know he's there were a lot dude. of musicians. I, I I don't care what anyone says; he's a good dude. Uh, <laughs> best dude. Um, yeah. Uh, have you seen that movie um, with Steve Coogan and the other guy, uh, where they're driving around uh, rural England, going to restaurants? Uh, I think they go to Italy at some point too. No, no. It's called, like, it's like called like, the road trip. And at some point, Steve Coogan has a nightmare, and he's walking towards a news agent, as they call them in the UK, and the guy is holding up a newspaper, and the headline is, Steve Coogan is a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> and he walks up to the guy, and he says, you can't say that. You don't know me. You don't know that. And he unfolds the paper, and below the gatefold, it says, says father. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and every now and then, man. I start like if I get really down on myself, I just think Patrick Ferguson is a cunt. <laughs> but um, no, uh, Jake. You know, our friend Jake, uh, Nick and I's mutual friend Jake. Also, one of the reasons that I sort of fell into complete silence for a while. We had this sweet dear friend that lived in Chicago, and and he would call me one or two or three or five o'clock in the morning, and we would talk until the sun came up. He was really struggling with his depression. And then he texted me that last week before the, the COVID curtain came down and we all had to start staying home. I had, I played, I subbed for Erica Rickson, my favorite drummer in America. I subbed for her in the band motherfucker, my favorite rock band in America. Um, and I had two five, eight shows and a pinky doodle poodle, like series of practices getting ready to head at to, to South by Southwest and I was like I've got to call Jake and it would always be like I look at my phone and remember that he had texted me like can you talk and it would be like 5 o'clock in the morning and so I missed it I missed it when he reached out to me and then and then and then Nick contacted me and said that Jake had, had killed himself and yeah 
And I just fucking, I just didn't feel like doing a podcast for a while. Like I just felt like, yeah, I get it. Like this guy reached out to me for help and I wasn't available. And I know I'm not the only person he reached out to for help. And there had been several times we had talked and he had been at the brink. And I, you know, one of the things that Nick said to me really stuck with me, which was that That well, I felt like I had failed him, and 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 that he had killed himself. Nick said, "No, man, just you and and the friends that did talk to him kept him alive longer than anybody ever thought that he'd stay with us." Right. And um. So yeah, I just went on a hiatus for a while and didn't do the podcast for a while. It didn't play any music and. And tried. I had a couple of like false starts with the podcast. Like I, I, I was interviewing people who knew Jake, and I was putting together an episode just about him. And it just felt ghoulish after a while. I just felt like I just man, I, I didn't want to. I just didn't feel like doing it. I, I, I just felt like it was. I didn't think it was going to help, so it kind of fell by the wayside. Um, I think that now that I've had some time. I've talked to some of the beautiful people who cared about him, and I may, you know, when the anniversary comes around, there may be a crash and ride just about our friend Jake. Yeah. And, um, well, count but, me in um, if you do, but. Yeah, I will. Um, and, and, yeah, it's just the summer kind of wore on, and it got to, it just felt like it, it couldn't hurt to do some more episodes. And I started reaching out to people who I tried to get with before when they were on tour, and maybe they were too busy or whatever. Um, but now everybody's at home. People have time yeah, to talk on the time. phone. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that is the one truism of of this medium is people thought they didn't have time before. Guess what, man? They got all the time in the world now. Yeah. So Will Johnson, <laughs> Dave Pajo, like those guys had time to talk. I talked to Brad Wood, who produced Exile and Guyville and a whole shitload of Chicago bands after that. Um, yeah, yeah. That that interview hasn't come out yet. I've, I've <laughs> he and I talked for four hours. I've got to like somehow condense four hours down to like a manageable oh, podcast. God. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't envy you that. I don't envy you yeah. that task to be sure. Well, but it, not, the problem is, not a bit of it's boring. Like right. that is an interesting which, dude, which is a good problem to have, really. Yeah, we we come down on different sides of the fence about the sort of fundamental relationship between major labels and artists. Like, mm. like he he has had mostly positive experiences by with getting paid and seeing artists make records and do well, and I have not had that experience. So. Yeah. Yeah. We oh. we uh, but I still like the guy a lot, and I feel like I think that both of our perspectives are just informed by our experiences, and it's just we have different experiences. But man, what a he's a good guy. Um, Patrick, it's been great having you on. I, I feel like there's even still a lot of stuff we left on the table. Like I didn't, we didn't even talk about the Five A documentary. I don't know. Did that is that Five A documentary was supposed to debut at South by Southwest, which was canceled. Yeah, what's um, what's going on? Is it going to be going to streaming stuff? Like, are we waiting for? Well, interestingly, like one of the people who saw it in pre-screenings is. Um, can I talk about this? I think I can talk about this. Um, if you hear me say this and you're not sure uh, if you're standing in the room with someone who might be a lawyer, maybe you don't talk about it. Um, <laughs> one of the people who worked on some kind of monster for Metallica as an editor saw it and was like, I love this film. I love this band, but I could, I could maybe touch the editing up a little bit. And um, so it's in their hands now and it's being, uh, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Re-edited by just a true um, champion. And um, 
I mean, everybody who's been involved in it has been amazing. Uh, there's a guy, Mark Pilvinsky, who's a, uh, was a, um, did a lot of music videos, uh, and documentary stuff and, and sort of fell into the role of director and head, um, cinematographer for the, the documentary and has shepherded it through its many phases. Um, our friend Jackie with the impossible to pronounce German last name. I bet a lot of, um, you Midwesterners would just laugh at how much trouble I have with it, but I <laughs> think it's pronounced shocknecked. Yeah. Uh, she was sort of production manager. Uh, there's a guy named Jeff Malconian who was executive producer and they've all worked really hard, but I don't think I can talk about this new editor. I don't know what the situation is with that, but, um, but it's going to be amazing and it'll, it'll probably come out sometime in 2021. Um, maybe it'll be next year's South by Southwest. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, you know, the, I always close out. I, I'm eager to see it when it does. Let's put it that way. Uh, I always close out the show. I ask people one question, which is just, why do you do what you do? You know, I'm not a huge Bukowski guy um, because I feel like I have my drinking problem. I didn't make a career out of it. Um, but, <laughs> but there's a great Bukowski quote about writing. And I think it applies to a lot of art. Like if you have to do it, if it just erupts out of you uh, like a volcano, if you don't do it, if, if, if you just like are absolutely driven to the point of desperation uh, by not doing the thing, in my case, playing drums uh, or recording, I like to make records too, um, or the podcast, if, 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 if it feels like your head's going to explode, if you don't do it, then do it. But if you just got your toe in the water and you're like, this might be fun, fuck off. Like, <laughs> you know, um, there was a band here full of guys that I liked, but they practiced like once for every show they played. Um, they're an Athens band. And, you know, they weren't bad, but they had like 11 songs for like five years because like, oh, so-and-so's got a show. They, should, they, they, they get together once and practice and they go play a show. And I was like, that's not really being a band. That's like, I mean, I know people who golf more often than that, you know, and that's not a job. It's a hobby, you know? So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, just, it sounds like I'm being really disdainful. I, I'm glad those guys had fun and I'm glad they had a band, but like I have to play music. There were like two years where I stopped. I lived in Chicago at Rogers Park for like a year when I was, uh, courting my now wife, then girlfriend, and uh, didn't really know any PRF people, didn't know any Chicago rock scene people, and just kind of coasted around trying to find creative relationships and didn't really connect with anybody and didn't really play in the like six months it took me. I was living in a – this is a very long story. I'll try to not take too much more time, but lived in a cabin, worked construction so I could afford to move to Chicago, and then when Chicago didn't work out for me, went back to the cabin for another year and didn't play any music and thought I was going to lose my mind. Thought I was going to just die of sadness from not playing music. So I have to play music. It's not like every time I try to stop, I'm just miserable. Well, I'm glad you haven't. And yeah. uh, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what you do musically, and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. And Thanks, man. The latter is not something I say very often. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just me? There seems to be a lot of bad podcasts. There's so many bad podcasts, man. It's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I try to be nice and I try to be supportive, but man, sometimes the best thing you do to support someone is <laughs> not blow smoke up their ass. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, there's some really good ones, though. There like, are some my great fa- ones, yes. Have you heard, heard Trillbilly Workers Party? No, that's on my list to check out, though. And, I, and, and I, I've actually... Uh, this is... I, I, Whatever. I won't get into it, but I've been... I've been kind of diving back into like trying new podcasts out lately. That that's the sum totality of it. Uh, but the important the important thing with this is that I think yours is great. I think yours provides a valuable service, and Thanks, I, I I it's enjoyable. It's enjoyable to listen and is doing something that quite frankly I don't think any of the rest of them do. So good on you for well, doing that. Good on you for doing that work. And uh, you know, consider me an I avid think, fan. I I know that as one one of my friends who I know is listening. I think there's a place for one more podcast in the world. Um, my friend David Wallens is the editor of Grassroots Motorsports Magazine, and I don't know why he's not doing a podcast about like backyard uh, mechanics who build these amazing race cars and then pro am race. Oh man, like that it. sounds great! Yeah, you would that be me? a great podcast? <laughs> well, I, I anything that just, comes come from a strong. Uh, position from someone with with uh, authority about a subject I, I always like a lot and one of the reasons i think crash and ride works is because you have spent this lifetime in, in in music and you have a close relationship with mental health and awareness of it and you know yeah, that shines through and people you know you can sniff out a bs artist god yeah it's weird how like it's weird the position that i don't know the podcast it grew really fast and like at one point I was like trying to figure out like when the Riley Walker episode got 12,000 listens, I was like, what, what is happening? Yeah. Who are these people? Yeah. Why does anybody like this podcast? And Fez Rousey of all people like talked me down out of my tree. He was like, look, there's only a tiny handful of people in the country who both have the facility to talk about mental health issues and have also played 3000 live shows. Like, That's you're exactly. the dude. This That's is exactly. your show. And, 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 yeah. the, and the fact is one, and one of the reasons why it works is because you own that, and you live in it, but you're not a dick about it. <laughs> and on yeah. that note, Patrick, buddy, thank you so much. It's but, been uh, so much fun. It's been so great, and uh, you know, crash and ride. Uh, what, uh, anything folks should be aware of, other than just uh, you know the stuff that's on the website. I know you got the coffee. There's there's a bunch of other stuff. Oh yeah, so crash and ride espresso available from uh, my friend Seth Hendershot at HendershotsAthens.com. Uh, that's a local coffee shop that is trying to keep the doors open, go buy crash and ride from them. Um, and once this is all over, you can go back to buying it off my website. Um, I got t-shirts and stuff, but, uh, man, I wish I had a gig list. Oh, you know, five, eight is doing a, a socially distanced live gig with just us and a sound man with masks, uh, on the 12th of September, uh, find the nowhere bar on social media and follow them and you'll get, uh, it'll be like 8 PM, 12th of September, nowhere bar. It'll be streamed on Facebook Live and whatever other media platform they stream it on. Well, I, I will be amongst the virtual attendees <laughs> for that particular endeavor. And I look we were supposed to, to practice tonight, but uh, one of our guys is sick, and I hope it's not serious. I'll keep everybody posted. All right, brother. Take Thank care, you. Kona. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, dude. All right, there he goes, Mr. Patrick Ferguson. Mr. Patrick Ferguson, 5'8", Pinky Doodle Poodle. Crash and Ride podcast. Uh, here's a 5-8 tune. Then we'll play some Pinky Doodle after that. Right on.
One, two, three, go, Pinky Toodle Poodle. I don't I don't believe that's actually Patrick on the drums there, but I wanted to play something that kind of gave you, you know, really, people, just the barest glimpse of what that incredible band is like live. And uh, 
the fierce nature of, of what they do, uh, especially with Patrick playing for them. Uh, it's it's a force of nature. Has a hell of a band, a hell of a band. Before that, we had the Mighty Five Eight with Goddamn and Paul. That is off of the 1992, yes, 1992 record. I learned shut up. Both those are songs by bands uh, Patrick Ferguson is in. What a cool guy. That's long overdue. Should have done that a long time ago. Call him back. And of course, the incredible Crash and Ride podcast, which I, I really can't recommend enough. He's doing good work, that Patrick. Name of the show is Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. It airs on Radio Nope, RadioNope.com. Signing off. Generally 8 a.m. East. 8 a.m. Jesus. And Mrs. America, all the ships at sea. 8 Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific. ProtonicReversal.com for the archives. Patreon.com slash ProtonicReversal to get episodes earlier. A dollar a month will get you there. I've got... 50,000 watts of power. Thank you so much, people uh, sharing the show around. Uh, new listeners, old listeners. I uh, appreciate all of you. I wanna ionize the air. There's some cool stuff coming up. Ed from Heads later this week. And I guess I'll go and announce it. Helios Creed of Chrome <laughs> next week. And that's amazing to me. Uh, anyway. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And of course, as always, Route 128, dark and lonely. Take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But 
haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day, Radio. 